Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a neurologist goes over treatments for the most common sleep disorders. This may be associated with uh, low oxygen levels in blood, which could be rather dangerous in terms of causing disturbances everywhere in the body, but uh, specifically the level of the brain and heart. A gastroenterologist discusses diagnosis and treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. The ones we talk about in particular, ulcer colitis and Crohn's disease, are the ones which are uh, due to some nexus of the immune system, due to some autoimmunity. Your own immune system plays a part in attacking your gut. And a nurse practitioner tells about prevention of secondary strokes. We tell them, you know, if you can live your life, you live it within the reason that you can, understanding the things that you do have control over. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about diagnosis and treatment of inflammatory bowel disease. Then we'll hear about the dangers of secondary strokes. But first, a neurologist shares information about the most common sleep disorders. apnea is the major sleep disorder associated with stroke and vascular dementia. Today, I have with me in the studio an expert in sleep medicine, Dr. Antonio Calabres. He's a neurologist and the director of medical neurology at Upstate Sleep Center. Thank you for being here, Dr. Calabres. My pleasure. I, I think we ought to start with some definitions so we make sure our listeners know what we're about to talk about. Um, sleep apnea, that's when you stop breathing when you're sleeping? Yes, this is the condition during which uh, people stop breathing at night while asleep or have uh, shallow respirations, which are, are also uh, pathological. And uh, when there are more than uh, five per hour of sleep, we call it uh, a disorder. Anything less than five per hour of sleep doesn't uh, really count, but more than five, uh, it does. And uh, there are people who have uh, 60 or 70 episodes of respiratory disturbance uh, per hour of sleep during uh, the night. And uh, this may be associated with uh, low oxygen levels in blood, which could be rather uh, dangerous in terms of uh, causing uh, disturbances everywhere in the body, but uh, specifically at the level of the brain and heart. So 60 or 70 episodes, I mean, that doesn't sound like they're getting much air at all if, they're, if they have that many times that they stop breathing, right? Well, actually, they do get air because they don't die, and nobody dies, or very, very seldom people die in their sleep as a result of sleep apnea. And uh, the uh, reason why they do not die if they stop breathing is because the brain has alerting systems. And when the brain senses that uh, not enough air or oxygen is coming to the brain, it wakes up the patient. And we call that an arousal. Arousals are uh, awakenings of uh, 30 seconds or less. So they are not recorded in memory. The patient does not remember them. But if there are hundreds of arousals during the night, you can imagine that sleep is fragmented and of poor quality, and as a result, the patient is very tired and fatigued the following day. Oh, that makes mm. sense. Okay. Well, what does um, sleep apnea do to the body's cerebrovascular system? That's the, um, the system where the, the, travels, the, bl the blood travels through, right? Yes. There are, unfortunately, many ramifications to the bad things that sleep apnea does to the vascular system. First of all, it raises the blood pressure. So people with uh, severe or moderately severe sleep apnea generally have hypertension. And this is uh, the type of blood pressure that does not respond well to medications. Oh. In fact, if there is a patient uh, who is taking three medications or more to control the blood pressure, 
that person should be tested for sleep apnea because perhaps sleep apnea is interfering with a proper control of the blood pressure. Wow. Now, the good thing is that if uh, sleep apnea is treated successfully, the blood pressure comes down. And it's not uncommon to see that uh, after several weeks or months on uh, proper uh, treatment, CPAP, BiPAP, the blood pressure comes down such that uh, the medications need to be lowered. Okay. So that's, uh, that's a phenomenon that we commonly see in our clinic. In addition to that, um, sometimes there is low oxygen associated with uh, respiratory disruption, and this low oxygen affects the heart, and these individuals are at high risk for developing uh, atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation, it's common in old age, particularly if there is sleep apnea with low oxygen during the night. And atrial fibrillation is a major risk factor for stroke. Now that's an irregular heart rhythm? It's an irregular chaotic uh, heart rhythm that uh, sometimes has no symptoms at the level of the heart in terms of uh, palpitations. Other, other times the patient feels palpitations, feels some chest uh, discomfort, feels uh, some generalized weakness. But atrial fibrillation should be treated. And uh, much of the treatment is intended to prevent uh, strokes. In addition to that, when there is low oxygen, that could affect uh, certain areas of the brain, causing uh, what we call microinfarcts, uh, small vessel disease, generally in the central portions of the brain. What happens after many years of this kind of attack on the brain is that uh, the individual gets a situation where the core of the brain is partially disconnected from the cortical regions, and as a result, they develop uh, difficulty walking, perhaps some incontinence of urine, and loss of uh, executive uh, mental functions in addition to poor memory. This is what we call vascular dementia. Vascular. Well, I was going to ask you the connection between sleep apnea <clears throat> and stroke, but you just answered it that um, if, if you have sleep apnea and you lead to atrial fibrillation, that increases your risk of stroke, right? Atrial fibrillation increases the risk of large strokes. Low oxygen during the night in patients with uh, moderately severe or severe sleep apnea, if not treated, could lead to micro or very small infarcts in uh, certain areas of the brain that end up disconnecting the core of the brain with the cortex and lead to this other form of vascular dementia which also has a long name, Binswanger's disease. Anyway, it does, uh, it's a form of dementia that is uh, relatively unknown outside the neurology circles, but is probably relatively common, particularly in patients with sleep apnea. There are other conditions like uh, uncontrolled hypertension and uh, diabetes uh, that can uh, contribute to this form of uh, vascular dementia. Let me remind listeners, uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with neurologist Dr. Antonio Calabres about how sleep apnea increases the risk for stroke and vascular dementia. Now, if someone has sleep apnea and they're being treated for it and they're using the CPAP, the breathing machine at night, and they're vigilant with that, does, does their risk for stroke or high blood pressure, does that drop if, it's, if they're being treated well? That is our assumption. Okay. And that is our hope. However, there is, not, there is no good confirmation that that is the case. However, my strong recommendation is that if someone has sleep apnea, sleep apnea should be treated because we do know that it lowers the blood pressure. And uh, we are hoping that by doing so, the uh, chances of developing other vascular complications, particularly if the oxygen is corrected, that uh, that will improve for the chances of surviving without atrial fibrillation, without vascular dementia. But the verification is still not there. So it sounds like 
if you're diagnosed with sleep apnea, there's not a cure for it. There is control. Control. And we can control sleep apnea with the breathing machines, with CPAP or BiPAP. We can control it. And it makes sense that if uh, sleep apnea causes all those problems during the night, the uh, low oxygen, the uh, fragmentation of nocturnal sleep, the increases in blood pressure, it makes sense to control sleep apnea. And in fact, as I said before, we do know for a fact that uh, high blood pressure improves. It's controlled with a proper treatment of sleep apnea. The other thing that patients uh, notice is that uh, their level of uh, fatigue and sleepiness during daytime hours improves. And people who fall asleep driving their car tell me, no, I don't fall asleep any longer. People who fall asleep at uh, traffic lights, no, it doesn't happen anymore. My productivity at work is much uh, better than it used to be because I have more energy. So um, those are uh, the uh, effects of uh, treating uh, sleep apnea and, of course, uh, quality of life improves. So that's very important. So even though we still don't have good uh, research confirmation, but it will come, but we still don't have it, that uh, sleep apnea prevents uh, strokes and vascular dementia, sleep apnea should be treated. All right. Well, how often do you discover uh, someone who's had a stroke and is in the hospital? How often do you discover that they have sleep apnea and they didn't know it? 75% of the patients who come with acute stroke to the stroke unit have uh, sleep apnea. I would say that perhaps half of them did not know it, or if they knew it, they are not uh, dealing with it uh, properly. They are not using their breathing machine. No one has insisted on how important it is and so on. So it is uh, a problem that we have to face on a daily basis in the stroke unit. So you need to treat the sleep apnea, obviously, it, yes. right, when they're Unfortunately, in the uh, proper sleep studies are done as uh, outpatients because of uh, reimbursement is not uh, adequate uh, while in the hospital, so these have to be done as uh, outpatients. But in the meantime, we do treat them, although the pressures that we deliver are just uh, arbitrary pressures. But uh, we do recommend that after being discharged from the hospital, this patient should be tested formally in a sleep center. Does sleep apnea affect a person's ability to recover from stroke? Yes. Okay. If uh, sleep apnea is moderate or severe, it will affect uh, the rate of recovery from stroke. Among other things, because people who have uh, that type of sleep apnea are not motivated, have poor memory, and their rehabilitation uh, skills are much lower than those who are fully in command of themselves. So yes, it does interfere, and in fact, if the sleep apnea is not treated, they continue to be at high risk uh, for stroke and blood pressure problems and so on. Well, I've read that um, obesity or being severely overweight um, contributes to sleep apnea. Are there things that people can do, preventive steps that people can take so they don't develop sleep apnea? Yes, indeed. Obesity is one of the risk factors for development of sleep apnea among other things, because uh, the large abdomen interferes with the proper movement of the diaphragm. So the chest is compressed and uh, they don't breathe properly. But also because uh, fat is uh, accumulated in the throat, in the pharynx, and that uh, reduces the lumen, reduces the uh, uh, lumen and uh, the flow of air changes as a result of that. So uh, people who are uh, morbidly obese are at high, high risk for development of sleep apnea. Obviously, the uh, prevention is not to become obese, and obviously the, the, the cure, and let me say, let me insist, the cure is to reduce weight to a BMI of about 25. 
And we are talking about people whose uh, body mass index, BMI, is 40 or higher. So to reduce from 40 to 25 is not easy. They need medical professional help to do that. And, uh, but I have seen cases of uh, individuals who have uh, come down to a BMI of 25 and their uh, sleep apnea has disappeared. But not only that, their blood pressure is wonderful and their diabetes is gone. So reducing weight to a proper BMI could be curative. So that's the biggest thing. Yeah. So real quick before we have to wrap up, um, how would someone know they have sleep apnea? If the uh, bedmate or spouse says you snore loudly such that I cannot sleep with you or I cannot be in the same room. If relatives uh, hear the person snoring from outside the bedroom, that person could very well have sleep apnea. If the person says during the night I wake up and I have difficulty breathing, could be sleep apnea. If the person has risk factors for sleep apnea, such as uh, obesity, and they are sleepy during daytime hours and uh, fall asleep inappropriately, that person could have uh, sleep apnea. So with all these uh, signs and symptoms, they should go to their primary physician. And I'm pretty sure that the primary physician would immediately pick up the possibility that there is sleep apnea and refer the patient to our sleep center for proper uh, testing and treatment. Good to know. This has been very informative. My guest has been Dr. Antonio Calabres, a neurologist with expertise in sleep medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, inflammatory bowel disease on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are inflammatory bowel diseases that can be debilitating and can lead to some life-threatening complications. Here with me to give an overview of IBD is Dr. Sekou Rollins. He's an assistant professor of internal medicine in Upstate's Division of Gastroenterology. Welcome, Dr. Rollins. Hey, Amber. Yeah, thanks for being here. So inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, that's an umbrella term for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's diseases. Um, so let's start with a description of what, what those are, how they're different. Okay, so the inflammatory bowel diseases are the bowel diseases uh, in which there is a, a segmental and sequential ulceration and uh, inflammation of the, of the bowel. And I say bowel in a very general term because it can affect anywhere from um, the mouth uh, to the anus, it's, it's a kind of diffuse disease. And in particular, it affects the colon and the small intestine. Now, um, there are two main diseases that we talk about when we say idiopathic inflammatory bowel disease because there are lots of different disease processes that can affect the gut. You can have infectious diseases. You can have diseases due to uh, the loss of blood supply uh, temporarily or permanently to the bowel. Uh, you can have uh, diseases due to uh, surgical change. But the ones we talk about in particular, ulcerative colitis and um, Crohn's disease, are the ones which are uh, due to some nexus of the immune system, due to some um, autoimmunity. Your own immune system plays a part in attacking your gut. Hmm. Okay. So if that's the case, is this are these conditions that people are born with? Because you're born with, you have your immune system as part of you. So does the disease, you're born with it? I think you're born with a predilection to have these diseases. Uh, there are some people uh, who, given the right or, or the wrong occupational things or the wrong environmental exposures, uh, they're likely to have uh, these uh, diseases. We say that, in general, people who have inflammatory bowel disease, they typically have a 40% chance of having 
a first-degree relative who also has these diseases. So we know there's a, a hereditary component, but we also know that depending what part of the world you live in, depending uh, what kind of um, toxins you're, you're exposed to, depending on the sheer volume of, of milk protein that you consume early on in life, you're likely or less likely to have these things happen, which is intriguing because we see clusters of people who have Crohn's disease in, in neighborhoods over different parts of the country and different parts of the world. Um, there is very little inflammatory bowel disease in sub-Saharan Africa, for instance. just doesn't happen. So it makes us think that there is something to do with the way our immune system processes um, messages that says to your immune system, hey, go attack the gut. But it, the, the, disease, the, the understanding of this is, is in its infancy right now, so we'll know more in the years to come. Interesting. Well, you mentioned milk proteins. So does this have something to do with dairy intake? Yeah. So there are, and again, it's still kind of being sussed out, and I don't want to have it running and screaming to the, um, the fridge. But we know that people who have a higher intake of, of dairy have a somewhat increased incidence of, of IBD. And it's not the only thing. I think it's the multi-hit process. I think you have to check all these boxes before you finally come down with the disease. Um, certainly, um, but I think that's that's part of the the, the situation. Um, so we don't really know what causes it entirely. That is, we have a lot of. I think theories. it's a lot of different things are contrib- contributing. Okay, are there risk factors that we're aware of? Things that maybe you said some people may be predisposed to this. Um, are there things that we would look out for to to be aware of that? Not especially. I think if you have a family history of, of other autoimmune diseases like lupus, psoriasis, ankylosing spondylitis, uh, these are all associated, um, uh, vitiligo are all associated with autoimmunity. So I don't think there's so much things that you can avoid so much as things that will allow you to be more vigilant. So if you have a relative who has celiac disease or if you're a relative that has Crohn's disease and you start to have diarrhea or rectal bleeding or belly pain, it would kind of raise the suspicion of your physicians that there's something going on. Okay. Well, um, how does the person typically discover that they have IBD? Uh, So it depends on which part of the bowel is affected. So people who have um, more uh, disease in their left side of the colon and then the the lower part of their colon, uh, they present with um, rectal bleeding. They might have um, bloody stools. They might have uh, left lower quadrant abdominal pain. They might have a feeling of incomplete evacuation when they move their bowels, as opposed to people who have a disease of the right side of their colon or the upper part of their colon. Um, they might just complain of belly pain. They might have weight loss. They might begin to have an iron deficiency. Um, um, if you have someone whose bowel disease uh, causes inflammation in their gut and they have extension of that inflammatory tract to other organs, you can have a situation where if you have a fistula, which is an abnormal tract from, say, the bowel to the bladder, you might end up seeing gas bubbles in the urine. You might see uh, feces in the urine. If someone has a fistula from their gut to their skin, you can actually get a wound on the, the abdominal wall. Uh, if you get, um, if someone has a large enough abscess or, or, or air of irritation, it can cause obstruction of the bowels, and it might have a pretty bad constipation and a kind of a distension of the abdomen. Uh, although I say, I think the prototypical complaint with inflammatory bowel disease are belly pain, diarrhea, and blood in the stool, which are the, the, the main complaints. It sounds like, as a physician, though, if you uh, the patient will tell you symptoms that really kind of lead you to, to suspect that it's a certain thing or not. Um, are there tests that you do to confirm a diagnosis? Absolutely. So the... The purest diagnosis of uh, inflammatory bowel disease would be done by endoscopy. So um, that's passing a, a camera tube into the GI tract, either through the anus into the colon or down from the mouth into the stomach and the small intestine. Um, so colonoscopy is the endoscopic test that we use to look at the colon and the very end of the small intestine. Um, for reference, the colon in most people is about five feet long whereas your small intestine is about 20 feet long. So there's a whole segment of small intestine that we don't usually get a very good look at. But the good news is that people who have ulcerative colitis, which is one of the arms of inflammatory bowel disease, uh, have disease which affects only the colon. So you can see the entire colon with a colonoscope, whereas people who have 
um, Crohn's disease typically have the disease at the very end of the small intestine and may have bits of it uh, through the entire colon. They may have disease around the, the, the anal opening and so perianal disease as well. Um, so you go in with a camera, you're able to visualize and see this, what, inflammation? Or what does it look like? Right. So in, in the healthy state, the, the colon is it's kind of this a shiny pink uh, glistening lining. So once you've cleared all the poop out of somebody, not to be too gross about it, once you've uh, done a, a thorough purgative, uh, someone's entire colon is kind of pink, glistening, healthy appearing blood vessels uh, through the lining of the colon. Uh, people who have disease, it, it can start off as um, uh, kind of, tiny erosions, tiny ulcerations. They can begin to have scarring. They can have stricturing and narrowing. They can have heaped up ulcers. They can have uh, frank bleeding. Um, and sometimes you can even see uh, uh, like a hole from, from one ear to another. So if someone has a fistula from one part of the colon to the small intestine or from the colon to another part of the colon, you can see these fistulae. Um, and Sometimes people can have such extensive strictures you can't even pass the scope. So you can get to an area through which you can't pass the scope anymore. And that's actually very concerning because once you have kind of a scar down area, there's nothing that medicines can do for the most part to fix that. That's actually someone's going to require a surgical uh, fix. Okay, so surgery is sometimes a treatment, but there's medications that are treatments um, too? There are lots of great medications. So there's entire families of medications which are, uh, are, are directed towards inflammatory bowel disease. Although, but I think all of us as internal medicine doctors and gastroenterologists need to remember that still about 30% of people who have Crohn's disease, no matter what you do for them, their disease is so aggressive in 2018 that they're going to need to have some surgery in their lifetime. So it's not a failure of medical therapy. It's just a, an example of the, the aggression of that person's disease, of the natural history of their disease. And um, is the surgery taking out part of the colon? Uh, it can be. Um, so depending on the distribution of disease, uh, some people have pretty much all the disease localized to one part of them. So some people with Crohn's disease can have very aggressive disease at the very end of their small intestine. And we found that if you remove the end of the small intestine, the terminal ileum, the end of the small intestine, take it out, and then you stitch um, the small intestine to the right side of the colon, um, these people will essentially function as, as not having any disease at all. Um, for, for, for months to years. Um, depending on how aggressive someone's disease was beforehand, you can actually avoid putting some people back on medicines at all. You can just follow them clinically to see how they'll do. Um, so some surgeries require removal of bowel. Some surgeries just require kind of opening up an area of narrowing. And that's kind of a... Um, that might be on the scope of this conversation. But discussions about surgery should be should be had with a trusted uh, colorectal surgeon, of which we have a number of them in the community who are just great. They're fantastic surgeons. I would send my family to them. Well, let me ask you this. How does life change for someone after they're diagnosed with an, uh, an IBD? Do, so, does it change their, their diet? Does it change what they're able to do, like lifestyle-wise? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of uh, professional athletes, of, of physicians, of teachers, of, of politicians who have inflammatory bowel disease and you wouldn't know unless they told you. Uh, and I'm talking about like professional basketball players, professional football players. So people who have robust schedules who have, um, who have these things. So um, in, in well-controlled disease and people who have achieved uh, clinical remission, I think their quality of life is, is equivalent to mine and yours. Um, I would go further to say that in the current state of affairs with medications, I think... Um, a life expectancy is now equivalent to the baseline. So it wasn't in years gone by that people with ulcerative colitis would expect to die of colon cancer. And people with Crohn's disease would expect to have chronic nutritional deficiencies and they would live shorter lives and they'd be smaller physically and malnourished. But that is no longer the case. I think that for the majority of our patients, we can, we can say, hey, it's going to be okay once we get you in remission. But getting people in remission sometimes can take months and years to kind of get them in the right um, cocktail of medications. So um, there are a couple different groupings of medications which are useful for us. Um, I'd like to talk about um, uh, corticosteroids, of which uh, prednisone is, is one of them. Prednisone is a great drug in that it's a great old drug. It's a cheap drug. Um, it's good for getting someone into remission right now. But we know that there are significant side effects involved in being on steroids for longer than a couple of weeks. So we're trying to limit people from being on 
uh, a lifetime on steroids for longer than so uh, in your entire lifetime we try to limit use of three months of steroids for the entire life so if your doctor puts you on steroids there, there has to be an additional plan to get you off of the steroids and that can mean starting another medication like um, um, azathioprine or 6-mercaptoprine which are also fairly old drugs were invented in the 1930s they were invented to treat um, cancers actually because um, we know that they affect the way the immune system works and can't, turns the immune system down and makes it so it stops attacking your gut so strongly. Um, these are great drugs. Um, it's very important to kind of monitor uh, people's blood counts and liver tests in the early going because we know that some people can have um, uh, an associated hepatitis, they can have an associated anemia because of these medications. So if you're checking uh, liver tests and blood counts for the first couple of weeks, that's pretty appropriate. Um, well, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you, once, once things are stabilized and a person that has IBD has got it under control, so to speak, are they still at risk for complications? Um, so short answer, yes. Uh, we say that once someone has inflammatory bowel disease for longer than 10 years or so, we need to do surveillance to make sure that they're not going to make a colon cancer. We say that at baseline, um, the average American person has a 5% risk of making a colon cancer, uh, whereas someone who has a long segment um, colonic involvement of inflammatory bowel disease has about a 10% risk of making a colon cancer. So it's a significant increase in risk. Um, and the way we surveil for that is by doing a colonoscopy every two years or so to see if the biopsies of their colon are showing any signs of change called dysplasia. Um, signs of dysplasia could indicate actually removing the colon because you can't get colon cancer if you don't have a colon. Um, so you have to be more vigilant with um, screenings for, abs, for this patient absolutely. population. So it's not just screening, it's, it's actually dysplasia surveillance looking intently. And sometimes at the time of colonoscopy, we'll, we'll spray the colon down with a, a special um, a, a endoscopic dye to try to kind of um, accentuate the, these, these findings. Well, very good to know. Well, thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Dr. Sekou Rollins. He's an assistant professor of internal medicine at Upstate in the Division of Gastroenterology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up. Your risk of a stroke increases dramatically after you've had a stroke. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. People who've had a stroke are at an increased risk for having another stroke. In medical terms, it's known as secondary stroke. Here to discuss this with us is nurse practitioner Stephanie Loveless from Upstate's stroke team. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So one of the major risk factors for stroke is having had a previous stroke. Um, why is that? Um, when we talk about stroke and stroke prevention, um, there are risk factors that are related to a patient being at risk for a stroke. The first one being um, an elevation of blood pressure. Secondarily, um, if you're a diabetic, have high cholesterol and or smoke. So there are various um, risk factors that we all can carry with us, um, some more than others, um, that lead us to being predisposed. And if you've already had a stroke, you probably have some of those factors Correct. too, right? A lot of times we see our patients in the hospital setting. They do have, um, even if it's a blip or an isolated episode of high blood pressure, um, they, they're not aware that their LDL, which is a cholesterol factor in the whole LDL uh, lipid panel that we draw at the hospital, was elevated. Um, we have stricter, stricter um, guidelines for the patients once they've had the stroke. 40% of our TIAs or transient ischemic attack patients go on to have a stroke. Um, I see some patients in clinic who go on to tell me that they didn't even realize that they had a stroke. 
So we huh. do a lot of education. Well, now, I, I understand there's two, basically sort of two types of strokes, the, the kind where the blood vessel is blocked by like a clot. Correct. Or the kind where the blood vessel bursts and it's a bleed. Um, is this the case for both types of strokes, that if you've had one, you're at risk equally Not for Not necessarily. When we see patients in the, the stroke clinic and in the hospital, 85% of the strokes we see are called embolic strokes or the strokes the that you referred to of the clot, yes. Okay. And only 15% are hemorrhagic or bleeds. A lot of our hemorrhagic strokes are related to high, high blood pressure, meaning 180 over 100, 200. Okay. We've seen blood pressures in the 220s over 120. So those kind of constitute and can drive a hemorrhagic stroke as opposed to an ischemic stroke. And are secondary strokes necessarily more dangerous than a first-time stroke? Not necessarily. A stroke, regardless of... The first or the second or the tertiary um, is your brain under attack. It is an emergency. And a lot of times patients will say, well, I don't even have symptoms of the stroke that you're telling me that I had. But based on the symptoms that they presented to the emergency room with in collaboration and correlation to the MRIs that are done will tell us that they did have a stroke. And thankfully, they don't have disabling effects from that particular stroke that they've incurred. Secondary time around the strokes don't always happen in the same location as the previous stroke, and they may end up with lasting disabilities. Okay. Now, you mentioned the term trans-ischemic attacks. That's a, a small stroke, right? It's, a, it's not a small stroke. It's symptomatology that may mimic a stroke or give us a precursor to a stroke um, may occurring down the line with the particular patient, given the symptomatology and their secondary stroke. So that is a, a, a risk. It's that, a warning okay. sign. Yes. All right. Well, if someone has that, um, those warning signs, what can they do to reduce their risk of a secondary stroke? Are there things, are, yeah. are there medicines to take? Um, there are. Uh, when we see patients for stroke in hospital, when we get ready to discharge them, we see them in our stroke clinic three months after the fact, and we talk about where their goal blood pressure should be. Ideally, JNC8 kind of changes where... Blood pressure parameters should be right now. We're striving for our stroke patients to have a systolic number less than 130, bottom number less than 90. Um, if they're diabetic, we want their hemoglobin A1C, which is a three-month average of what their blood sugar runs, to be less than 7.0. We'll see patients with hemoglobin A1Cs up in the 9s to 11s, which does affect the blood vessels because they are fragile in the base of our brain. So it sounds like basically they have to get all of those risk factors as best they can under control. Optimizing your secondary stroke risk factors is the goal and ideally how we're going to prevent additional strokes from happening. There are medications that we do typically put the patients on. We put them on um, an antiplatelet, which is either an aspirin or a clopidogrel, which is Plavix. Um, and, you know, every day that goes by, research is changing and growing as far as there's now lab testing for us to be able to look at values to see if patients are responders to those particular medications. So it's exciting times for stroke because we are able to do a lot more for our patients. If their LDLs are elevated greater than 70 after having a stroke, they typically go on a torvastatin. You will hear patients say that, you know, I can't take a statin, I have muscle pain. And, and there is legitimate cases out there where they just don't tolerate those statins. Um, there's alternatives to statins that you could discuss with the provider that is working with you. There are um, other statins different from a torvastatin that we use. So there are options, but um, it's always important to keep a statin within the bloodstream as long as it's monitored. Now, what about like lifestyle and diet? Do, do you get into, are there a lot of changes that people have we to? We do. Um, depending upon the providers we work with um, collaboratively, some go by the DASH diet. It's the diet aimed at stopping hypertension. And we do um, provide them the American Heart Association papers that kind of give them a serving size and things to kind of shoot for to watch, limiting their salt intake. If you're diabetic, um, you know, low, uh, low cholesterol, I'm sorry, low, um, sugar, low sugar. You know, mm -hmm. diets. So the other, a diet that we do look at is, is the Mediterranean diet. That's, uh, back over, over in Greece there, the, the olives and the olive oils and, and the vegetables, um, more, more 
plant-based um, diets versus the animal proteins that we consume uh, with lots of red meat because it's not necessarily the, um, the red meat itself. It's the protein and the hemoglobin that's in the meat that irritates the vessels ah. in the patients. Okay. So there's some things that a patient will probably have to do to sort of change yes. how they're living. Yes, they have to take accountability. Um, I think another... Um, secondary stroke risk factor that we didn't discuss is smoking. Smoking is a big one that um, the vessels don't like anything irritating, and whether it be a plaque from a high LDL or a clot from atrial fibrillation of the heart to um, smoking and inhaling all of the carcinogens that come along with it. Um, that's another really um, important risk factor that we can and have control over and changing in our lifestyles. Oh, good to know. Let me remind listeners, this is, uh, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. My guest is nurse practitioner Stephanie Loveless, and she's talking about secondary strokes. Um, I wanted to ask you, what do you say to patients who feel sort of overwhelmed? Um, maybe they have multiple risk factors. It's got to be hard to like manage all of this stuff um, all at once. So how do you? We take it one step at a time. And, you know, none of us are perfect. We all have things that we can work on within ourselves. But, you know, you, you, you do have the unfortunate label of saying that you've had a stroke, but that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to have another one. You do the best that you can to prevent that secondary stroke. And by doing that, you know, if you can focus on one thing, work on getting your blood pressure to goal range. Take a, a true hard, fast look. A lot of times we'll send our patients home with automatic blood pressure cuff scripts so they can take their blood pressure once in the morning when they get up and then maybe once during the course of the day if their day permits. Give that to your primary care and see if you do qualify for a blood pressure medication or if you need a different blood pressure medication. Baby steps. I mean, we all have different things going on, comorbidities we may not even know about yet. But if you can take one step and then in a month from then, build on that, build on, you've got a good control of your blood pressure. Now you're borderline diabetic. So really try to get out there and, and take a, a walk every day. Start by walking to your mailbox and back if that's all you can do, and then extend the time and extend the distance as you can. So even if you're um, actively doing, taking steps to reduce the risk factor, I imagine it can be sort of anxiety provoking to have, I don't know, the threat of a stroke hanging sure. over you. And I guess everyone has a threat of a yes, stroke. Yes. It could happen to any of us. But if it's happened to you already, you sort of know what it could happen. Um, do, you, do you ever deal with like anxieties? Always. Anxiety and depression is another piece that we're really looking to bridge over and, and have additional conversations about. But certainly patients will come in and say, what's my chance of having another one? And, and certainly it's on an individual basis, and it just all depends on what your risk factors are, where the territory involved was, and whether it could happen again. But we tell them, you know, if you can live your life, you live it within the reason that you can, understanding the things that you do have control over and taking care a lot of times the patients will say, well, I have to travel or I have to do this. Common sense things, you know. Make sure if you're taking a long-distance drive to visit the grandkids that you're getting out every hour or two, stretching your legs, taking a little bit of a walk. On these hot, humid days, as we're all seeing now with state fair time, make sure that you're hydrating, you know, the common sense things. But so sort of adapting. Adapting, sort of. exactly. Well, I want to ask you about the signs and symptoms of stroke, but before we get into those details, a person who has experienced a stroke and the signs and symptoms of one stroke, would they necessarily be the same signs and symptoms the second time? No, and that's a good question. Oh. A lot of patients will tell us, well, so if this happens, then I should do it. Well, yes, keep that in mind, but having keeping that in mind, you have to kind of take a look at the whole picture of all the signs and symptoms because depending upon the area of involvement will determine whether you end up with disabilities or not. Patients will say to me in clinic, well, you told me I had to come to the stroke clinic follow-up appointment. I'm here, but I don't feel bad. I don't know that I had a stroke. And thankfully, they didn't have any debilitating or disabling effects from that stroke. So, um, But they still had a stroke. They still had a stroke. Their MRIs will show that there was that bright spot in the one sequence of events that correlate with the symptoms that they presented to the emergency room with. 
All right. Well, let's go over the um, signs and symptoms just so people are reminded. Sounds um, good. The first one? So we use the mnemonic right now called FAST. Um, is your face? Yep, F-A-S-T. Is your face drooping? When we look at stroke patients, we look for asymmetry, meaning one looks one side looks different than the other. So is the, the corner of the mouth more droopy? Is an eye droopier? Um, the creases on either side of our noses um, could be now, more flat. Would the person, I mean, certainly looking in a mirror, the person would see that something is unusual. Would they necessarily feel it? If, you're, if your it face depends. is drooping? Sometimes patients will say, you know, my, my face was drooping, my lip, and I felt like I had Novocaine, like I had just been to the dentist. Oh. So there are, you know, in, in not only physical weakness, but you can see um, sensory changes. You can feel your face feels different or your eye feels different. Um, another one is arm asymmetry. So is one arm weaker than the other? When strokes happen, it attacks typically one side of the brain affecting the opposite side. So if um, your left arm is weak, likely there's something going on in the right side of the brain, and we look for different symptomatology for that. But arm weakness, you know, you're writing a check and your pen falls out of your hand. It's not a small, it's not a small thing. You know, if you lose your ability to write or speak or swallow, those could be lifetime, long-time disabilities. So when you say arm weakness, it might not be the entire arm. It could be your hand. Correct. Just a simple, you know, weakness of your wrist flexor or extensor. Um, you drop your cup of coffee, which you're normally strong, and you go about your business. You're set into your routine in the day, and um, you pick up that cup of coffee, and it falls on the ground. Well, that's not probably typical for you, so be alert to that. Um, speech. Is your speech slurred? Um, patients do speak softly. Uh, patients do have differences in speaking sometimes, but if it's different to your loved one or if you're on the phone talking to family and you know what you want to say but you can't get the words out or you say the words incorrectly, your, t your brain is under attack. There is something going on that needs to be looked at more um, expediently in okay. the ER. Okay. And then the T? The T is for time. Time is brain. Our brain is under attack, and I try to tell all of the patients in clinic and when we discharge them from the hospital that... Gone are the days of strokes just being a disabling event in someone's life that we can do nothing for. It's like your heart is under attack. So you need to look at the clock, see when you were last known normal per se, and then call 911. EMS are our lifelines to the emergency departments. They give us a call in to tell us what is going on with the patient, what symptoms they're seeing. And if you're from outlying hospitals, too, we have a telestroke program that Dr. Latori and Dr. Schmidt and other of our attendings can see the patients to determine where they need to be next, whether so they get, get to a hospital. Yes, ma'am. Preferably a stroke center, but get to the closest hospital. Closest hospital, then 911, you know, 911, closest emergency room to where you are at that given time. And then if they have a telestroke link to upstate, they're typically reaching out to us and we're getting you to us. Well, very good to know. Thank you so much for the information. My guest has been Stephanie Loveless. She's a nurse practitioner specializing in stroke care. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. One of the fears we associate with aging is losing our memory, not being able to speak and be understood. Here are two poems that capture the frustration, the fear that can come from such forgetting. Robin Talbert grew up in Cliffside, North Carolina. She's the former president of the AARP Foundation. Here is her poem, Fork Getting. The experts say it's okay to forget a word, a name of a place or a person, normal aging. It's okay to forget the word for fork. Only worry when you see the fork and can't recall the function. What for the fork? Worry then. Normal, that familiar words become curious. Sounds get tangled up by tongue or brain. Pumpernickel, sorry, I meant pumpkin, 
Paramount, uh, no, parallel. Perplexed? Yes, you? The correct term hidden, just beyond grasp. The word, a missing sock. I know it's somewhere in the back of the drawer. I will find it only when I stop looking. Lucinda Watson offers a starker glimpse in her poem, Getting Around Town. It was late morning when she first forgot where she lived. In deep November in northern Vermont, and the car heater was still working, puffing prodigiously on the way to town. Crossing her eyes with desperation in the post office, she turned away from the simple white paper with cold black lines and drew a rabbit on the Formica table, lying like a mortician's tableau below her. She turned her head very slowly, as an owl does, not disturbing the hump in her spine, when wondering who you might be, her owl eyes clicking a slow semicircle to the left of the line of mailers, waiting to post money or love, hate or anger, give or take. She was looking for who she was. She would be any of them in the blink of an eye if they would let her. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we talk with New York State Health Commissioner Dr. Howard Zucker. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.